Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. In this episode, we tackle the next chunk of Michael Brown's opening statement in the recent Trinity debate. We address his argument that since God's words remain forever and Christ's words remain forever, they must be the same. Next, we briefly explain the grammatical issues related to Titus 2.13 and the alleged Granville-Sharp rule. Then we discuss Brown's case for Jesus as the eternal, uncreated creator of the cosmos. Now, I realize these episodes are a bit long and that you may be getting weary of this topic, but we felt it would be best to give a somewhat thorough examination of the many texts Brown used to support his claim that Jesus is God. And believe it or not, the treatment we are giving each is rather brief. We could easily do an entire episode on every text here. There are so many things to say and so much fascinating detail and tie-ins to other important theological concepts but that would almost certainly be wearisome. What I'm trying to do here is just pump out these episodes as quickly as I can so we can get back to our theology class when we'll focus our attention on the topic of conditional immortality. To help you follow along, I've got the relevant portion of the manuscript Brown used for his opening statement on restitutio.org or in the show notes for this episode. All right, so here's part two, episode 160, Refuting Michael Brown's Case. For the Trinity. All right, let's let's play the next part. That's why in the Old Testament, Yahweh's words remain forever, Isaiah 40, but in the New Testament, it is Jesus' words that will remain forever, Matthew 24. The Lord declared in Isaiah 43:11, I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. Yet throughout the New Testament, Jesus is hailed as our Savior. Either he's one with God, or there's more than one true Savior. Paul leaves us no doubt, referring to, quote, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, in Titus 2.13. That's the most obvious and clear sense of the Greek. Jesus is our great God and Savior. We also learn from the same section in Isaiah that when Yahweh created the universe, he did it alone. As written in Isaiah 44, 24, I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. Yet the New Testament tells us explicitly that the Son was involved in creation. In John 1, 1, Jesus, uh, John uses the language of Genesis 1-1 in the Septuagint, saying that the word was in the beginning, N-R-K, just like in the beginning God created, Genesis 1-1. And explaining that what God was, the word was. And he continues, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And John tells us it is this pre-existent word, this word through which all things were created, which became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. That's why John the baptizer explained that Jesus ranks before me because he was before me, John 1. That's why Jesus said he was from above, 
that he came down from heaven, that he came from God and was returning to God. John 3, John 6, John 8, John 13. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Even more emphatically, he wrote, Colossians 1, for by him, speaking of the Son, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. The text is clear. The Son is eternal. The Son is uncreated. All things were created through him and for him. All right, well, that's a, that's a good chunk for us to get working on here. Uh, I, I think it's really interesting that he states that the Son is eternal after reading all those verses. I didn't see a single verse that said the sun is eternal, or that the sun is uncreated. I mean, did you catch a verse in there that said that, Jerry? I mean, he mentioned a lot of verses. No, I think that was another presupposition of his. Yeah, you know, it's like, all right, this is what I believe. The sun is eternal. The sun is fully God. The sun is uncreated. And then he's like, he goes on to say, oh, well, these, these verses call Jesus God or uh, imply in Brown's reading that Jesus is the creator. But, like, none of that leads me to conclude that the sun is eternal or that he is uncreated. And so I, I think he, once again, we have a non sequitur. I mean, he's, he's laboring. I mean, he's obviously working very hard to prove his case, but even if I grant him his interpretation of all of these texts, which he is absolutely machine gunning here, although I know he denied that later on that he did not machine gun texts. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that in the final analysis, whether or not you agree with me on, on that he is machine gunning here. It's not at all clear, even granting him, his interpretation of all these texts that the Son is eternal. And look, he has to have the Son be eternal, and yet there's no place in all of Scripture that says the Son's eternal. This is the, the chief awkwardness of the Trinitarian position. They need the Bible to say things that it doesn't say. And so what have they done historically? They've locked the Bible away in translations that people can't read. They have made up this is unbelievable. But they've made up their own verses and injected them into Scripture, such as 1 John 5, 7, so that the Bible would be seen to be teaching the Trinity, even though no other place does it affirm Trinitarian language. So what do we have here, Jerry? Where do you want to get started? Well, first of all, let's look here at the parallelism that Brown is trying to draw between Yahweh's words remaining forever from Isaiah 40, and then in the New Testament, Jesus' words will remain forever, Matthew okay. 24. Uh, I, he's trying to make this, this logical equivocation here between these two, saying that, well, because Jesus says his words will remain forever, then, then he must be Yahweh, because only Yahweh says his words remain forever. But I think that this is simply undone by the fact that Jesus explains his words to be not his own. I mean, John 12, 49, I do not speak on my own. I do not speak of my own, on my own authority, of my own accord. I don't actually say my own words, Jesus is saying. He says that, but the father who sent me, Jesus says, he commanded me to say all that I have spoken. 
Jesus is now saying that it is the Father's words that he is speaking. Therefore, his words as the, the teacher, the rabbi, the Messiah, the one who God sent, who is authorized to speak on God's behalf, is speaking God's words. And therefore, the words that Jesus speaks are God's words, not because Jesus is Yahweh, like he is God himself. It's that the words that Jesus is speaking are words that come from God not from himself. Brown's argument here is that God, it says God's words remain forever. Jesus' words remain forever. Oh, Jesus is God. Uh, th this is tantamount to saying, I'm wearing a dark blue shirt. Jerry's wearing a dark blue shirt. Oh, Sean is Jerry. I mean, come on. This is just ridiculous. Why can't they both have words that remain forever, especially if the son is speaking the father's words? You know, Isaiah's words are going to remain forever too. Isaiah must be God. No, he's speaking God's words. I mean, this is so easy. It's, once again, it shows the weakness of the position. That, that Brown is not just somebody who has thought about this a little bit. I mean, he, he's engaged in this subject. He's worked extensively with James White. I wouldn't be surprised if James White was involved in the, in the crafting of this opening statement here. And, you know, he has all the resources of the Trinitarian camp at his disposal. And this is the argument he makes? You've got to be kidding me. This is a joke. My seven-year-old could see through this. It's just not the kind of quality argument that I would expect. And, you know, the fact that Dale Tuggy didn't refute arguments like this, some people are saying, oh, well, that's because Tuggy is a philosopher. He's not a Bible guy. Oh, please. Tuggy is a Bible guy. He does engage in Scripture. He just didn't see a reason to refute this sort of a weak argument. Tuggy's being gracious. I'm being less gracious. <laughs> when the whole subject of two gods came up, what did Tuggy say? He said, well, uh, that's ridiculous. I'm the Unitarian here. You can't accuse me of believing in two gods. And he just dropped it because the argument was just, was just silly. So, you know, once again, this is just a silly argument and it betrays an amazing level of ignorance on the principle of agency that we see in the prophets, with the judges, with the angels, certainly with the king of Israel and quintessentially, of course, with Jesus, the ultimate Messiah, that God's agents do God's will, speak God's words, do God's works, and in many cases are even called God throughout Scripture, or speak as if they are God, speaking in the first person, saying, I am the Lord your God, and so on. You see this all throughout the prophets. You see it with the angels, and you see certain judges being called God, Exodus 21, 6, 22, 8, 9. We'll get to this in a subsequent episode. I don't want to take too much time on this with you here uh, because I am going to address this fully in another episode, the whole principle of agency. But it's like Brown has never even heard of this. And so he says, oh, well, God's words remain forever. Jesus' words remain forever. Therefore, Jesus is God. And then on the next text here, Isaiah 43, 11, he quotes, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. And he states that Jesus is hailed as Savior in the New Testament. Either he is one with God, or there is more than one true Savior. Paul leaves no doubt, calling Jesus Savior in Titus 2.13, and so on. So, look, God is a Savior. Jesus is a Savior. Like I, like I mentioned before, the judges of Israel are called Saviors, right? Anyone who saves anyone is a Savior. This is not a divine title. This is just a description of what God does, and God's in the saving business. Now, look, if you're drowning in the ocean and the Coast Guard shows up in a helicopter, and then somebody rappels down and 
throws you one of those lifesaver inflatables for you to grab onto and helps you to get up into the helicopter. Who's the savior? Who's the savior? Is it the, is it the, the Coast Guard as an institution? Yes. Is it the pilot of the helicopter? Yes. That person is the savior. Is it the person who rappelled down and gave you the lifesaver? Yes. Is it the lifesaver itself? Yes. 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 They're all saviors. So that means that that means that the helicopter pilot is the Coast Guard. Nah, I don't think so. He's a member of the Coast Guard, but he can speak as if he is a Coast Guard because he represents the Coast Guard. This is, this is a good analogy for us to think with. Jesus is Savior, but he's the one through whom that God is doing the saving. In Acts, when Peter is talking, he says that God has exalted this one, this person, referring to Jesus, who the Israelites murdered in the previous verse, it says, and that he has exalted him to his right hand as ruler and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Uh, Jesus is not God in the sense of being the savior, but Jesus is the empowered agent of God who is bringing about the salvation that God promised to his people long ago. Amen. Let's move on to talk about Titus 2.13. I don't know how in-depth I want to get here. Let me just read what Brown says on this text. This is one of the reasons I suspect James White has been involved here because of the statement. That's the most obvious and clear sense of the Greek. Jesus is our great God and Savior. I know that White has done a lot of work on this alleged Granville Sharp rule and Titus 2.13 and a couple of other texts there. And I would say that your average Greek reading person would not use the term obvious, certainly not most obvious, nor clear sense of the Greek. I mean, the reason why there are translation differences is because it's not clear in the Greek. The text says in the ESV, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. However, the NAB, which is uh, also a modern translation, very good translation, done by the Catholics who believe Jesus is God, says, as we await the blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of the great God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So look, we're, we're talking about a whole team of people on either side of this issue. Teams of people. The NAB, there is no one on that translation committee that does not have the highest possible degree that one can get. And, and I'm sure the ESV, these people are experts in Greek as well. So what does that tell you, ladies and gentlemen? You don't need to be a Greek expert to figure this out. It tells you that on both sides, the ESV people and the NAB people affirm the doctrine of the Trinity, and this text is disputed. Be that as it may, Jason David Badoon also says in his Truth in Translation book that those who defend translations that read as if only Jesus is spoken of in both Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1 attempt to distinguish those two passages from the parallel examples I have given by something called Sharp's Rule, in quotes. In 1798, the amateur theologian Granville Sharp published a book in which he argued that when there are two nouns of the same form or case joined by the word and or K in, in Greek, only the first of which has the article, the nouns are identified as the same thing. Close examination of this much-used quote-unquote rule 
shows it to be a fiction concocted by a man who had a theological agenda in creating it, namely, to prove that the verses we are examining in this chapter call Jesus God. Look, ladies and gentlemen, if your rule, if your alleged grammar rule is invented by someone who is doing the same thing as Michael Brown, trying to prove the deity of Christ back in 1798, and then 200 years later, somebody comes along and they're like, oh, look, this text says that Jesus is God. Well, look, the rule by which the translators establish that Jesus is God was written by somebody who was trying to establish that Jesus is God. This is the definition of circular reasoning. And look, if, if this is all you've got, is a smattering of texts that are disputed based on manuscript or translation. I'm sorry, that's just weak. That's just weak. Is the Shema such a weak text in Deuteronomy 6.4 or in Deuteronomy 4.35 and 4.39 where it unequivocally states that Yahweh is God, He, singular personal pronoun, and there is no other? There's no textual uncertainty with that, no. The Shema is the very heart of Scripture, that Yahweh is one. And there is no Trinity definition there. Where's the Trinity? I thought God was a Trinity eternally. Look at Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34, where Jesus is in discussion with a non-Trinitarian Jewish scribe, and they agree on the same definition of God. No Trinity there either. And I would say that text beautifully excludes the possibility of, of a trinity. Where's the textual uncertainty in Mark 12, 28 to 34? There is none. There is no manuscript issue. There is no translation issue. There's only a question of if we're going to allow that text, if we're going to unleash that biblical scripture on our theories, on our theologies, and let it ravage them. And whatever's left, let it stand. Okay? Titus 2, 13, you got to be kidding me. Even just in the English, you can see that in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then in verse 13, it's talking about the appearing of the glory of our great God. And it's, it's the same word, epiphania, which is the noun, and epiphano, which is the verb. It's the same word between verse 11 and verse 13, the appearing of the grace of God in one case and the appearing of the glory of God in the other case. What is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior because when Christ comes, it is God's glory. It is our Savior's glory that we see in Christ. So that's another interpretive option, just putting a, a, another comma in the text, which the Greek totally substantiates, or seeing this as two reference here for the glory. The glory, as the once again, as the NAB, the New American Bible puts it, the glory of of the great God, and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to say that at best, this text here, Titus 2.13, is extremely weak. But even if it did call Jesus God, it does not necessarily support the Trinity, because we know that Jesus can be called God, as I'm going to play out in a later episode here, the whole principle of agency. Moses is called God, the prophets speak for God, the angel of the Lord is called God, the king of Israel in Psalm 45, a point that Tuggy made several times, is called God, and that's not messianic originally in its original context. So humans can be called God if they represent God. So this is, this is not at all a slam dunk for the Trinitarian side. Brown is drawing upon this Granville Sharp rule that was developed back in uh, 1798 
uh, as Sean, as you mentioned, in an effort to try to prove the Trinity from the scriptures, in a sense, it's a little bit of circular reasoning. Uh, but in his, uh, in reading about it, I remember he cites these 25 odd examples that uh, don't have any Christological significance to them as a way to substantiate the rule. And then by extension, applying that then to Christologically significant uh, places like uh, 2 Thessalonians 1.12, uh, 1 Timothy 5.21, 2 Timothy 4.1, Titus 2.13, 2 Peter 1.1, Jude 4, where you can see that there is typically something about God and Savior or God and Christ. And what is having these uh, two nouns um, joined by the copulative or the, the coordinating conjunction chi and in Greek, that then it would be having a single referent. And uh, that's that's Granfell Sharp's basic rule that, uh, but there's some limitations to it that the these two nouns have to, they must be personal. Uh, they can't be proper names or or they can't be titles or things like that. They must be in the same case and, and singular in number. And so the, the debate really circles around whether or not theos and kurios are actually titles or impersonal nouns. And this is where the debate comes. And that's why translations differs because you know, there's no established norm for understanding and interpreting whether or not they are proper names or titles or, or not, uh, unless you have a presupposition on how you want it to read. So I think Brown's argument is really ambiguous uh, because it can be made from both sides. So I don't really think that there's really a strong argument to be made there. Right. Uh, then he goes into John 1.1. 1, 1. He quotes Isaiah 44.24, where it says, this is, this is a, another case of shooting yourself in the foot. He says, I am Yahweh who made all these things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. And then he goes on to say, but, but the New Testament, especially John 1.1, 1, 1, 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and Colossians 1, 16 and 17 teach that Jesus is the creator. So look, if you're going to quote a text that says, let me read it again, Isaiah 44, 24, I am Yahweh who made all these things. That is not the Trinity, ladies and gentlemen. That is Unitarianism. That's a singular pronoun. We don't have, it doesn't say we are Yahweh. That's what we should expect if Yahweh is a designation of the Trinity. But in fact, this is a singular individual who is claiming to make all things. And then he says, Jesus made all things, therefore Jesus is God. This, once again, is modalism. This is not the Trinity. If you're going to say that Jesus is Yahweh, full stop, then you have collapsed the Trinity into just one person, Yahweh Jesus. You know, look, I don't, I don't make the rules for what counts as heresy or not for Trinitarians, but I'd have to say this sounds like heresy to me, where Brown is collapsing the Trinity into one person. But anyhow, let's take a look at John chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 8, and Colossians 1 to see what these verses have to teach us. What do you think, Jerry? Well, again, Brown really comes off here in rapid fire trying to throw out these verses and really doesn't go into much explanation. He almost takes them to be like self-evident as though, hey, can't you guys just read the Bible and see that this is what it means? But there's a lot more to it. And I think that he runs into a lot of difficulty. If you read the prologue of John verses 1 through 18, you'll see it's actually quite a, a developed uh, explanation uh, and yes, okay, let's give it that when John talks in the beginning, and he says, in the beginning, 
okay, yeah, Genesis 1-1, and, and Brown makes that point. That's great. Awesome. However, Brown then just excludes the following context and jumps all the way to like verse 18 to try to point out, oh, and by the way, you know, Jesus was actually the one in the beginning doing the creating uh, with God as like a, a co-creator uh, or a, a dual God creator. Um, but the thing that I think Brown is missing is the Jewish wisdom theology perspective of which John is bringing. And John's gospel, this is not a foreign concept because John throughout his gospel talks about Jesus being this representative, this individual human who is revealing the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel to his people. You know, we could go on and on about Jewish wisdom theology and the way that like in Proverbs 8:22, wisdom is spoken of as, as being the first thing that God created and, and actually being with God and helping God create the world and everything. And this personification of divine attributes is, is a well-known aspect of the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, but I, I would refer you to a previous episode in this podcast where a colleague of mine, John Shanghai, does an, an admirable job of explaining John chapter 1, and that's episode 111. And if you'd like, you know, see the link below to, to listen to that as he does a much more thorough explanation as, than we have time here to do. So I think there's a lot more to John 1 than Michael Brown actually reveals, and it's really not as self-evident as, as he thinks. Sean, what's your thoughts? Whenever I read John 1, I always think of Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. And then again in verse 9, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God's word is a way of talking about God in action. And you can see this also in Christology in the Making by James Dunn. He does great work on this subject, uh, as well as the wisdom of God and the Spirit of God. The Word of God is a way of talking about God as imminent. And this is an issue that Michael Brown brought up several times in the debate and, in, and subsequently that there's an issue with transcendence and eminence, and it's his Word that makes him eminent, makes him present in the world. Now, the BU, the Biblical Unitarian understanding of the prologue of John, is that the Word is not a person. It's personal. It's a way of talking about God in action, but not, it's not, strictly speaking, a distinct person or a separate person until it becomes flesh in Jesus Christ in verse 14. Often people get confused by this. They, they say, oh, well, look, it says that he, he's there before, he's there before, he's there before. Well, look, it's verse 14 when the Word becomes flesh. Before that, the Word is talking about what God is doing. So I, I don't really see John 1 as definitively showing Jesus as the creator. It shows the Word as the creator. And uh, this is just another little snippet from the Jewish Encyclopedia, jewishencyclopedia.com, under the entry for Memra, which it glosses as Logos, or the Word, in the sense of the creative and directive word or speech of God manifesting his power in the world of matter or mind, a term used especially in the Targum as a substitute for the Lord when an anthropomorphic expression is to be avoided. And this is interesting because Brown also brought up the word memra, which is this, this concept from rabbinic Judaism as a way of thinking about John 1. But look, memra is not another being than God. It's a way of talking about God while preserving his transcendence. So I think that's really what's going on here in John chapter 1. What about 1 Corinthians 8, 6? It seems like it's a text on our side. Why is he quoting it here? 
especially considering the fact that there's evident subordinationism in the text, uh, which has got to be awkward for a Trinitarian who affirms co-equality. What do you think, Jerry? Yeah, I think Brown is just bringing this in as a way to try to tie in Jesus into a, a creation account in his mind here. As 1 Corinthians 8 is talking about that there is one God, the Father, the Father is the one God, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and then one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. I think he's bringing it in just to try to tie in another account uh, to substantiate how Jesus is the creator. But I think he's way off in this regard, and, and actually this text doesn't really affirm what he thinks it does. What we see is that Paul is making an explicit point about the Father being the direct agent, the source from whom creation comes, and for whom uh, the purpose or the direction toward by which we exist. And then he switches to now Jesus Christ. And there's a difference he makes. It's actually through whom there's a, an aspect of instrumentality there. This idea here of Jesus having this uh, instrumental instrumentality role or mediatorial role in creation needs to be discovered in terms of the entire context of which Paul is using this idea of Christ in creation and, and to what creation is actually being referred. And this comes down to the question that's always been asked by exegetes and, and, and theologians on what does ta panta, all things, refer to? Is it all things in the universe? Is it all things on earth? Or is it all things in regard to the new humanity in Christ? And I think that's where a lot of people have recently kind of uh, discovered that the context points toward the idea that Paul always talks about Christ in an eschatological sense, and that it's not about in the beginning like a John 1-1 when God created the heavens and the earth and filled it with all things, living, plants, and animals and stuff, but that there's a eschatological sense in which Christ has now inaugurated a new order in the world. And, and people like J. Murphy O'Connor and Raymond Brown, these are world-class scholars. They recognize that this, this type of language that Paul uses is not, a, is not a cosmological type of argument where Jesus is the creator of the cosmos, but it's actually an eschatological rendering where in the last days when God is going to bring together all things in heaven and on earth in Christ, that all things are through Christ and ultimately through him we exist. It's not that in the beginning Christ was a creator now making the world and, and being there with God and actually creating Adam and Eve, but that now as the messianic figure that brings to culmination God's entire soteriological plan, his plan of salvation, that everything that God had purposed for the ages is coming to fulfillment in Christ. And therefore, God, from whom are all things, whether you take it in, a, in an absolute universal sense, or if you're taking it just now in like a ecclesiological, like a church, or eschatological, like the end times of the kingdom sense, which that is kind of the way Paul is taking it, you see that Jesus as the Christ is actually not functioning in a co-creator capacity as in reference to John 1, 1. It's actually in reference to the way that God is fulfilling his entire plan that he had in, in place before the foundation of the world 
So Sean, how do you look at this passage? Yeah, I think you've really put your finger on the question, Jerry, where the issue is the all things. Are we referring to creation or are we referring to salvation? And 1 Corinthians chapter 8 doesn't seem to be talking about creation, quite frankly. Typically, this is one of the strongest one God verses. Again, it's amazing to me that Brown uses this text. Uh, you, you look at verse 4. It says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So we know that Paul clearly affirms to the Corinthian believers that there's no God but one. For although, verse 5, there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us Christians, for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord. Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. There, there's a clear subordinationism here between the Father and the Son. God himself is the source of all things. Jesus is the one through whom we experience all things. This sounds like the Christian experience of salvation and the ongoing fellowship we have with the Father through the Son. This is a one God text. This is not a Trinitarian text. I don't know why Brown used it. All right, so this is, we're, we're taking a bit of time with this, but that's, once again, because Brown brought up three really interesting texts, um, all of which support the clear biblical teaching that the Father is the only true God, and that he, uh, he and many others have been confused by or uh, read presuppositions into, the third of which is in this little grouping here, Colossians chapter 1. Brown says that for by him... All things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, and that this is evidence for the fact that Jesus is eternal and uncreated, and that all things were created through him and for him. Like I said before, look, this doesn't say anything about the eternality of the Son. It doesn't say anything about whether or not the Son himself is created. I would love to spend considerable time talking about the whole concept of generation, the concept of being begotten, because there is inherent tension, I would say even contradiction, between affirming the eternality of the Son and the fact that the Scripture says over and over that He is begotten of God. And so I don't think it's possible to be eternal and be begotten, and I think this whole idea of eternal generation is just a square circle. I think it's just nonsense, and ever since Origen first invented that, in the early to middle of the third century, to this day, this has been baggage on the back of Christians who really start to think deeply about how is it possible that the Son, think about this, the Son is eternal. Is that possible? By definition, a Son has to have an origin, a beginning point from the parents of the Son. Now, obviously, in this case, we're talking about the Father and the Son, and this isn't Islam, so there's no mother god or anything like that going on here. I mean, we're, we're talking about the father generating the son. And if he does that, then he, the son, by definition, can't be eternal. That's just, that's just impossible. It's logically contradictory. But I don't want to get too, too waylaid on that. Jerry, let's, Jerry, by the way, is a Pauline specialist. He has a master's degree in Pauline studies, and he, I could tell you, he lives, breathes, and eats Paul for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, okay? So, uh, Jerry, what does Colossians 1, in a very brief outline, because we got to get back to this opening statement, 
before too long here, but what does Colossians 1 say? Is it saying, based on your knowledge, is it saying that Jesus is the creator of the heavens and the earth? Uh, Sean, no, it's not. Okay, moving on. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead, elaborate a little for us. Yeah, let me let me give a few uh, points for the listeners to think about. Even before we get to the idea that Brown is trying to bring forth here about for by him, meaning the Son, he said, all things were created. Let's step back, first of all, and there's two points that Paul talks about right before that that are just as important. First, um, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. There's a whole part that Brown really overlooks in regard to how Jesus is the image of God, how Jesus reflects God. I mean, it's kind of difficult, I think, for Brown to get around his modalism when in like John chapter 14, when uh, Thomas is, is like, you know, you know, show us the father and Jesus is like, you see me, you see him. It's either Jesus is the father, the son is the father, and you have a modal, a modalistic look on God. Or Jesus in some way stands in a visual representation, a tangible, concrete reality exemplifying God's character. The second thing back in Colossians chapter 1 is this term, uh, prototakos, this firstborn of all creation. You know, I think that one thing that Trinitarians never really grapple with or they've come up with, with extravagant theories about is how Christ could be born in the sense of that he's the firstborn. When Paul then goes on to talk about this creation aspect, he does so as a segue from the idea that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Because then he goes on to say, in him, in Christ, all things were created. The way that Brown portrays this is that Jesus is now some sort of agent in creation by him for he like as though Jesus was the creator but that's not the text and this is not the most natural way to read the greek because it's very well known that this is a divine passive where god created all things in christ and there's this idea that the preposition in in which is the greek word en uh, it, it's this idea of location sphere. It's in, it's within this realm of who Christ is that God has done certain things. And Paul goes on to explain what those things are in creation. It's, it's not creating like birds and trees and hills and valleys and humans. It's actually a reordering of angelic beings and their authorities and powers in, in the cosmos. And so it's not actually the creation in the Genesis 1-1 sense. It's actually now that the Christ event has happened, the entire cosmos is reordered in light of that significant happening. Yeah, I think that is just such a helpful distinction there where if the Apostle Paul was specifying the Genesis creation in Colossians 1-16, we should have seen something like this. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether plants or animals or fish or birds or people. Something like that, where it's, it's going to follow the pattern of Genesis and specify the sorts of creations we see in Genesis. But instead, 
What does Paul specify? How does he qualify the creation he's talking about here? He qualifies it as referring to the realm of authority, a reordering of cosmic powers and authorities. He says thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things. Now, we have to be careful when we read all things. If you just automatically default to creation every time you see all things, yeah, you're going to think Jesus is the, the creator of the earth and the sky and, and the birds and so on. But look, you have to read in the context of the verse itself. He's specifying what all things he's referring to. He's referring to these authorities. And I always think back to Ephesians 1, where Paul is praying and he talks about the immeasurable greatness in 118 of his power, of God's power towards us who believe, and that this power was worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above, this is verse 21, all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I mean, there, there's an undeniable linkage between Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1 that Brown and those who are interpreting Colossians 1 as referring to creation have to break. I mean, ultimately, Brown's position is that Jesus is awesome because Jesus is God and he is creator. But that's not at all the point that Colossians is making. The point that Colossians is making is Jesus is great because in him, God has done this great stuff. He has, he has achieved these victories that have reordered the authorities in heaven and on earth that now, as the head of the church, you know, this has nothing to do with pre-existence. This has nothing to do with original creation. This is to do with, as you put it, Jerry, the Christ event and what this achieved and how this changed the world forever. And that's exactly what we see in the parallel here in Ephesians 1 as well, that the work on the cross, the resurrection, the ascension has enabled this incredible exaltation and reordering of cosmic powers. And we tap into that as Christians today in the name of Jesus Christ. We have authority over unclean spirits, for example, and over a great many other situations that are talked about in the Bible. Yeah, this is exactly what Paul's trying to get at. And it's really helpful to read the letter to the Ephesians with the letter to the Colossians because they have a lot of overlap and they explain different things about similar realities. Like, for example, in Ephesians 1.9, it says that he, God, made known to us the secret of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ with a view to the administration of the fullness of times to sum up or bring together all things in Christ or in Messiah, in heaven and on earth. In him, we were also chosen, destined in accord with the purpose of the one who accomplishes all things according to the intention of his will. See, the idea is that all things have come together. There's like an awesome Greek word here, anakephalao, to like everything is brought to a head in Christ and head, and Jesus is the head of all things. And therefore, when it says that all things are, that God created all things in him, it's this bringing together the entire cosmos, especially the angelic powers, underneath Christ or within the sphere of who Christ is. 
And so this, this is the important aspect to understand is that uh, Christ, there's a whole new thing that God has done in Christ that when Jesus died, when God raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand, the entire universe changed. What I love about this explanation that you're giving here, Jerry, is that it fits so well within all of the epistles of the Apostle Paul. Colossians 1 is, is, is referring to this very Pauline idea of summing up all things under the headship of Christ, which is this new reality that Paul is informing the churches of so that they, they understand where they stand in relationship to God, apart from the works of the law, as new members of this kingdom community, this eschatological reality that is now already in existence through and in Christ. So, I mean, I, I think it just fits like a hand in a glove. I mean, if you read through all of Paul's epistles and you, you read Colossians 1 in that context of the corpus, you're, you're going to see how well this fits together. Whereas suddenly and abruptly calling Jesus the creator, there's no way Paul could just drop that bomb and then not anticipate, especially the Jews in his churches, of thinking, oh my goodness, he just called Jesus God. He just called Jesus the creator. I mean, look, you read Paul's epistles, like, uh, Jerry, think, for example, the epistles to the Romans. He says in one place that, you know, everything is through grace, right? Everything is a result of God's grace, not by works, right? And uh, then he automatically anticipates the objection. He says, well, should we just sin and let grace abound? God forbid. You know, like, Paul is the kind of thinker, and he's inspired in such a way by God to write such that he does anticipate objections, and it's unthinkable that he would drop the bomb of Jesus being the creator of the heavens and the earth in Colossians 1 and then not anticipate there would be issues and then address them right away. The whole thing makes a lot more sense if you understand it as referring to the Christ event rather than referring to the Genesis creation. Yeah, I think also there's a lot of background to the letter of, uh, to Colossae that should be taken into account as well, where uh, the audience was dealing with these other Gnostic tendencies, which scholars have, have talked about what it really could have been. But we do know that Paul, in his letters, um, are they're occasional, meaning he's writing for a specific purpose to respond to a specific thing, and he's making it clear the way that it's not these other... Uh, gods, these other demiurges uh, that the believers at Colossae uh, might have been exposed to, but actually God the Father, everything came from him, and he's talking about Christ here and the way that the world has been ordered through him. These other pagan gods and deities and everything like that are insignificant. Everything revolves around God's Christ. And so there's a lot of other background information that can be uh, looked at to understand the way that Paul's trying to to use the Christ event here to explain uh, the reality and the the eschaton, meaning the end times. So we've we've looked at these three texts: John one, First Corinthians eight, and Colossians one, and we categorically deny Brown's statement that the text is clear: the Son is eternal, the Son is uncreated, all things were created through Him and for Him. We we agree the text is clear, but we disagree with what he thinks it says. We disagree that the Son is eternal. Uh, the text never addresses that subject. We disagree that the Son is uncreated. Once again, the text never said anything even remotely like that. And then uh, we also disagree that all things were created through him if Brown thinks all things refers to birds and trees and fish of the sea. 
And then he goes on to say, you, you really have to gay, engage in a hopeless series of exegetical gymnastics to deny the plain sense of these words. And remember, in Isaiah, Yahweh said no one was with him when he created the universe. Yet these texts say he created all things through his son. That can only mean one thing. The father and son are one God. And that's why Jesus explained that it was his father's will, John 5, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. All right, so here he says that you have to engage in, quote, a hopeless series of exegetical gymnastics to deny the plain sense of these words, end quote. Sometimes one of the most effective debating strategies is to label your opponent with what you just did <laughs> so that nobody looks at what you just did. I would say that Brown has used exegetical gymnastics to deny the plain sense of these words in John 1, 1 Corinthians 8, and Colossians 1, saying that these texts together somehow imply even that the Son is eternal. It doesn't say it explicitly, doesn't say it implicitly. So I'm going to have to say that he's, he's, this is the pot calling the kettle black here. And, you know, once again, Isaiah is not going to help you. Isaiah's whole point is to say that Yahweh is the only true God. And then to quote that and say, oh, well, but Jesus created too, so therefore Jesus is Yahweh. Well, that's not the Trinity again. That's oneness. That's Sabellianism. That's modalism. And, and it's not the Trinity. So that's not helping either of us because neither of us affirm <laughs> that particular doctrine. And then he says that we would honor the Son even as we honor the Father in John 5, 23. Once again, this is cherry-picking a text way out of context. If you read the Gospel of John, chapter 5, it's one of the clearest Unitarian texts in the Bible. Uh, Jesus' enemies misunderstand him to be claiming to be God. Jesus clears it all up by saying he can't do anything on his own. Can you imagine God, the Almighty, the Eternal, the Uncreated, saying, I can't do anything on my own? Of course not. Jesus can't do anything on his own. He can only do what the Father shows him, and his Father is at work in the world doing things. Jesus is joining him in that work, and God has given Jesus this distinctive role as the Son of Man, and that is how people should honor Jesus. They don't honor Jesus as the eternal God, but they honor Jesus as the Son of Man, and that the point of what Jesus is saying in John 5.23 is that you can't have God and reject Jesus. That's what he's saying there to his critics who are listening in. He's saying, look, you guys think you have a relationship with God, and then you're going to reject me? No, that's not how it works. I'm the Son of Man. I'm the one that God has established and ordained for this eschatological role. You, you read in Daniel 7, 13, and 14, as the Son of Man, and if you want to reject me, you're going to be in trouble because you're rejecting God too. You cannot dishonor me and honor God. You have to honor the Son as you honor the Father. It has nothing to do with his substance, with his eternality, with his status as being eternal God or anything like that. It's his status as being the Son of Man, which is clearly the one, if you read Daniel 7, 13 and 14, the one that is separate from the Ancient of Days and the one to whom the Ancient of Days gives the kingdom and the glory and the power. Two individual beings, the Son of Man is presented before the Ancient of Days just like an important person would be presented before the king in, in his own throne room and given this incredible honor. And that's how we honor the Son, with the honor that is appropriate to his role as the Son of Man, as the Messiah, as the Lamb slain, but not as the eternal God.
Yeah, you're definitely right, Sean. Uh, the way that Jesus is supposed to receive honor is not some crazy idea that he needs to be worshiped as God. Actually, Jesus says that the one who rejects him rejects the one who sent him, rejects God. And so to, to give honor to the messenger is to give honor to the sender. And therefore, that's why if, if you don't honor the son, if you don't honor Jesus as the one that God sent, you're actually dishonoring God. So that's why Jesus needs to be honored because he's the one that is in, has been endorsed and authorized by God as his representative. That's it for this episode. If you would like to add your comments or to engage with either myself or Jerry or other of the Restitutio community, please visit restitutio.org and look for podcast 160, Refuting Michael Brown's Case for the Trinity, Part 2, and add your voice to the mix. Uh, just a few, uh, few comments to read out. An anonymous writer wrote, Although I found Brown tremendously annoying, I think you are somewhat unfair given the structure of the debate. The reason he had a stronger rhetorical position was that Tuggy was defending a particular theory. Brown was merely on the attack. His goal was to show that the data, in this case the Bible, was incompatible with Tuggy's theory. You and Dale, to a lesser extent, want Brown to propose a positive theory so that you can go on the attack. I get that, since then Brown would be at a disadvantage. But that was not what Brown was about. I think that Brown is actually a Mysterian. He doesn't really know what the right answer is and is fine with not having one. It is coherent to argue that theory X is compatible with the data, even without presenting a rival theory Y. Unless the debate was structured differently, you can't fault Brown for refusing to give you Y, which is what you really want. Well, Anon, I think you definitely have a point as far as the debate question is concerned. Essentially, Brown was simply tasked with denying that the Father alone is God in the Bible. However, the problem I have with Brown is not so much that he didn't spell out his theory of understanding God. It's that he very smugly presumed that everyone just knows what, quote-unquote, the Trinity is, and that he is in that camp. And this is really one of the major focuses of Professor Tuggy's work, if you get his book, What is the Trinity?, is ferreting out the fact that there are so many different Trinity theories and classifying them and analyzing them carefully. And so what do we find with Brown? The problem that I had with Brown was not so much that he didn't present a positive case for his view. It's that through his presentation and rebuttal and other responses, he eliminated all the possibilities from the table. The, the, the illustration I think of is everyone is building their own little models out of popsicle sticks and Tuggy's got his model, the biblical Unitarian view. You've got the subordinationist, sometimes polemically referred to as the Arian view. You've got the Binitarian view, held by some even today. That's the view of Nicaea one, the first council of Nicaea. Uh, you've got the, a bunch of different Trinity theories. You've got modalism. You've got a number of different ways to think about God and Jesus. All right, And if you think of each one of those as a little model glued together out of popsicle sticks sitting on the table. What did Brown do in this debate? Now, if he went up and he smashed to pieces the biblical Unitarian model and the modalist model and every other model except for his model, that would be fine. That would be fine. I would be like, oh, wow, he's really being thorough here. A little excessive, but whatever. He's being thorough. He's, he's 
completely eliminating all the options. But that's not what Brown did. Brown destroyed everything. There was literally nothing on the table. And so that's where I think a lot of us are just find his style to be just so over the top that it's it's not really helpful in any way. If you're asking somebody if, if they like chocolate or vanilla ice cream and they respond, well, ice cream, ice cream is unhealthy. That doesn't really help you decide which one to pick now, does it? Uh, and that's really what Brown did here. I mean, he just he just said you shouldn't theologize. You shouldn't have clarity on God. So maybe you're right, Anon, that this is a mysterious position. Uh, maybe that's why I'm so annoyed by it. <laughs> uh, not that we have to understand everything about God, of course. But look, you can't contradict yourself and then call that your model of understanding God. That's just nonsense. But I see your point there. Thanks so much for writing in. Baruch writes, I'm curious if you had to choose only five texts to exegete in a debate Dr. Brown, which would you choose? It seems with Dr. Brown, at least, you would only need to show that Jesus is not Yahweh. By the way, what you exposed in this episode, and I'm sure you will continue to expose in the next, is that, like many Trinitarians, Brown's reading of the text are heavily informed by his philosophy, not by the actual record of the Bible. Though, of course, he claims otherwise, his arguments for the Jesus-is-God position are based upon Jesus needing to be God for the sake of one, substitutionary atonement, two, because God cannot share his glory, whatever that means, since people give glory to God, three, only God can be worshipped, whatever that really means. Ironically, he repeatedly accused Dr. Tuggy of reading the text through the lens of his Unitarian philosophy. Uh, Baruch, that's a keen observation, and this is something that really White, James White, has pioneered accusing anyone who doesn't automatically presuppose the doctrine of the Trinity and all its complexity when reading Scripture of the quote-unquote presupposition of Unitarianism. It's not a presupposition. Tuggy was very careful in his opening statement. He did not presuppose any theological view. Instead, what he did was he gave six points that show how unlikely it is that the New Testament authors in any way affirmed a doctrine of the Trinity and made his case from that. So that's not the presupposition of Unitarianism. That's just that's just like an old debating trick where you just accuse the other side of presupposing something. And once again, I mentioned this in the episode, you have to be careful when somebody gives you an accusation like this because sometimes what they're really doing is accusing you of the very thing they're doing to draw attention away from their sel- themselves and onto you. And I think that's really what we have here. This is the presupposition of the incarnation, you know, Brown's very strained reading of John 1, 1 to 14 and Philippians 2, as if that clearly indicates that the eternal God transformed himself into a human being without ceasing to be God and without losing any of his divine prerogatives, but while also limiting them. I mean, come on, did he really establish that in the debate? No, but he presupposed it right from the get-go. Another writer from the Netherlands, Noah Glimmerveen, writes in, Hi, Sean, you're really doing Christians and anyone interested a great favor with this podcast. The biblical Unitarian perspective is definitely minority and deserves much more exposure. The reason that it is relatively marginal also is because there are few publications, book or podcasts, from this position, which is a shame. Your classes at Living Hope and this podcast being notable exceptions. I know of Dale through his excellent comparative religion courses and always find his thoughts enlightening and valuable, though he may get a bit too technical for laymen at times. This debate with Dr. Brown was a great listen, and I'm enjoying the follow-ups. 
although I concede that Brown had the power of persuasion and confidence on his side, but these subsequent explanations make his case clearer and more persuasive. However confident and profoundly the Trinity may be stated, it always breaks down somewhere eventually and does neuter the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is God gave and sacrificed Jesus Christ as a man who gave everything for our redemption. His sacrifice was real. His death was real. And it makes his glorification and confession that he is Lord all the greater. Going through these texts, the specific details you have here is helpful and seems to fit the logic and themes of the New Testament. I do have my doubts with the Unitarian position of the Holy Spirit, which seems confusing to me. Maybe a good idea for a future episode. I look forward to the rest of the series and the theology series when it resumes. Thank you for your great work, Noah from Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Noah, thanks so much for writing in, along with Baruch and our previous commenter. I'm glad to hear that this work is getting out there. As far as the Holy Spirit goes, uh, this is a subject that I have addressed and many others have addressed as well. I have a couple of interviews on Dale Tuggy's podcast that I did about the Holy Spirit that you could listen to. I also have two or three uh, full-length theological essays on Restitutio. So if you just go to restitutio.org and click on Articles, you'll see there uh, the work that I've put in on the Holy Spirit and what it means and what it doesn't mean. And essentially just summing it up, it's a way of talking about God as being active in our world. It's personal, but it's not a separate person or distinct person from the Father. It is the Father in action. And post-ascension, it's also Christ in action. And so it's just a way of talking about God doing something in our world while he remains in heaven, or the same thing with Jesus. Jesus is at the right hand of God, but yet he said to his disciples, I will come to you. Well, how is that possible? It's through the paraclete, through the Spirit, that Christ is able to be present in his church, and God is able to be present throughout the world. So hopefully that helps a little bit. Check out the essays if you want to dig in deeper, and I'll certainly take it into consideration. And I also think I have a episode coming up in the theology class on the Holy Spirit, so stay tuned for that as well. That's about all the time I have for today, so sorry if I didn't get to your comment. I know a lot of you have been commenting, and I certainly appreciate that. I think this is really an, an important subject to discuss and to get to the bottom of and to have a strong defense of. Thanks so much. We'll see you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.